What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, and I'm your host. And today I'm interviewing Lauren Bailey, the CEO and co founder of Upward Projects. Upward Projects is a family of restaurant concepts throughout Arizona, Colorado, and Texas. Lauren is a freight train of energy, passion, and humility. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, including a trip down memory lane, exploring Lauren's passion for art and design, and how she was able to find her calling in the restaurant business. The philosophy of Upward Projects, putting employees first no matter what, which might seem a little odd for a business dependent upon guest satisfaction. We cover the disruption happening in the restaurant business and how Lauren and her team are monitoring the trends. We also cover one of the biggest mistakes Lauren and her team made and how they responded to the challenge. We also take a bit of a turn and explore the importance of women in leadership, an interesting topic given the late 2017 explosion of sexual harassment claims happening across entertainment, business, and politics. And let's not forget Lauren's infamous cookie monster story. This is one for the ages. And I really love the underlying lesson that she shares from this story. Finally, we touch on Lauren's inaugural conscious capitalism experience and the impact it is having on her and the business. Lauren's passion and zest for life is undeniable. Our conversation absolutely flew by. I hope you enjoy Lauren's spirit as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Lauren Bailey. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me for another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast is Lauren Bailey from Upward Projects. Lauren, what's up? How are you guys? I'm so excited to be here. It is awesome to have you. This has been weeks and uh, probably months in the making. Uh, I had a chance, uh, gosh, it was probably four or five months ago and had a a chance to chat with your partner in crime or one of your partners in crime, Craig, and had a great conversation and then had the pleasure of spending a little bit of time with you about a month, month and a half ago in Austin, Texas, when we were at the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit. So we'll get to that. But before we do, I want to actually kind of rewind the clock here a little bit. And something that uh, is fascinating to me is you were born in San Antonio, but I know you spent the majority of your childhood in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm from Indiana, by the way, go Hoosiers. And yeah, yeah, I want to know how the hell does what what I'll call a Midwest farm girl from Fort Wayne, Indiana, (laughs) get interested in like this dream of wanting to be an artist uh, as your childhood dream, like where does that come from in Fort of all places in Fort Wayne? Like where, where was the influence? How did this come about? Okay. It all started with, um, a music lesson with a keyboard. You remember those like eighties keyboards and people would want to play, um, you know, they'd learn little tunes on there and stuff and you could record yourself. Remember those? No, totally. Yeah, so um, I got one for Christmas, and I wanted to learn how to play it, and so my mom signed me up for um, music lessons, and after the first lesson, the teacher pulled my mom aside and said, listen, um, 
this isn't a good plan. She is not tone deaf, but doesn't hear music the way people do. And you're just, <laughs> this isn't going to be a good spend of your money. <laughs> and after my mom, like my mom kind of told this lady off and she's like, come on, Lauren. And we were driving, she's Southern. So I was actually born in Texas, but raised in Indiana. And she, she puts me in the car and I always really like to do art. I mean, that was like my jam, but she, she gets me in the car and she's like, what else do you want to do? And I was like, I like art. And she's like, okay. So she put me in classes really early on in life. I think I was like five or six at the time of the keyboard incident. But, um, you know, I, I started doing that early and that's just been something that my mom always supported that I ended up um, just taking so many art classes in at ASU that I ended up getting a second degree. I didn't even realize I was going to do that until I was about to graduate and then my, my, uh, counselor said you just need like two more credits to get a full degree and I was like wow sweet so it's just been kind of woven in the vein of everything I do from from really a young age and so I don't know if that helps or makes sense but that's kind of how it started yeah no that makes a ton of sense and I know that uh well before I move on to that was it was it drawing was it painting was it all the above was it building like what was it it was anything and everything. I mean, I was, I liked to do sculpt when I was little. It was like, I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was like Sculpey and like Play-Doh and, you know, making things like that and beads and art and painting. It was everything. It always has been. So just super creative right out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, even now, like I, I put the, um, the cassette tape wall up at Windsor and we, I tried to do the matchbook wall at, um, at, uh, the Postino Highland, but there were like 10,000 matchbooks. So that didn't work um, alone. And I did the book wall at Mohai. And so, you know, still going strong with kind of random art installations. That's cool. That's really cool. Now this art thing, obviously, uh, it carried you quite a bit. And if I understand the story, right, you had uh, some art scholarship opportunities at some pretty cool schools like USC, uh, University of Colorado at Boulder, um, but you ended up at ASU. Uh, is there a story there worth telling? There's always a story there worth telling. Um, so yes, I did. And much to my mom's dismay, you know, I, I, this is funny. I flew out to, um, she let me when I was 17, fly out to LA um, and Denver and then take a bus to, to Boulder and then um, go check out U to U University of Colorado. And both of which just didn't really resonate with me. I felt like the University of Colorado was really hippie. Like everybody, it was almost a requirement. You had to be wearing a hemp necklace and that wasn't really my deal. And then I went out to LA and if you've ever been to USC, it's kind of in sort of at the time too, especially a little bit of a scary part of town. And I was kind of bummed and I was flying home and I, I've always been pretty chatty and I was talking to this gal next to me and she's like, you have to go check out Arizona State. I work for Southwest and I'll rebook your flight. So my friend and I were like, okay, we'd go to the payphone. I'm showing my age now. Call my mom and tell her we're staying over in Phoenix. And she was like, okay. And we get us a plane and it's like March in Phoenix. It's beautiful weather. There's like a million people on Mill Avenue. We're like, this is great. And so came home to Florida and told my mom that um, we'd moved, by the way, in the middle of that. But um, told my mom that we were... I was going to ASU and she was pretty cracked, but again, supportive. And, um, she dropped me off at Manzanita. That's the, you guys all know that little joint dropped me off there. And I remember she said to me like, are you sure you want to do this? You don't know anybody. And I was like, yep. See ya. And high fived her and gave me a hug. And she, um, she told me not to get any tear, uh, piercings or tattoos. And that was the only rule. And I'm like, I can live by that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so away I went. That's how I ended up here. And so did, I mean, did this art bug that you had, uh, this DNA, 
did it lead you through ASU? Because it sounds like uh, you know you graduated. It wasn't just art anymore, and and you, it sounds like to, you know based on your experiences at both USC when you were visiting at, up in Boulder that you sort of punted on the scholarships because it doesn't sound like there was one waiting for you at ASU unless I misunderstood. No, I missed the cutoff date for that um, for ASU, so I didn't get that. But I also I think. You know, the time of life that we're in now, people value art a lot more than they did. I mean, this was, man, 10, 15 years ago. So they, people had kind of beaten into my head that you're never going to get a job if you get an art degree only. What are you going to do with that? And I kind of sort of felt that too. So I just did it because I loved it. And it, I just wanted to take those classes. So what did you end up, uh, you know, just to sort of round this, this ASU experience out, how did you round it out? What did you finish with? Well, I like to talk and um, be around people, so I thought communication. <laughs> actually, that's not true. I started with a. My dad was like, "Lauren, you need to get a business degree." So I was like, "Okay." So I went to the first class of um, of uh, it was like economics 101, and I was like, "This is the most horrible thing I've ever experienced in my life." I think I went to three classes, and I was like, "If I have to spend the rest of my life doing this, I'd rather be poor." And and I, like, no, there's no scenario where I want to do this. Macroeconomics, and so. I, I get out of the business program and get in communication and um, ended up doing that. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I think uh, if I read during your senior year, at some point near the end of your ASU career, you spent some time in Italy, did some pa- uh, backpacking uh, and really sort of uh, did a little exploration. Right. This is impressive. Like, I feel like we're taking like a trip down memory lane and you're like, you know, what's up. I'm well, never- <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, um, I, got, I got a few little birdies, uh, that, that, yeah. helped, that helped me I, out. I'm kind of scared. I feel like you're just warming me up for all the other stuff. You really know. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so yeah, that, that is true. I, um, like I said, I, I got towards the end of the, my senior year and the gal that was my guidance counselor, she said that, um, she, I needed two more credits. <clears throat> To, to get two degrees and I was like I was ready to you know graduate and I was kind of thinking about going to grad school and she's like you could take those two credits in Italy and I was like Italy for this semester check no problem so at this point I was already working in restaurants and one kind of important thing to to add is that my 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 dad was supposed to my parents got divorced and that was why we moved to Florida but my dad was supposed to pay for my college and my mom was you know doing what she could and she was interior designer but at some point he stopped paying and you know she's like Lauren look you either need to get a job and help with some of these expenses or you got to come home and go to state school and I was like I'm not coming home so I made a fake resume started they hired me at P.F. Chang's which I love to tell that story I actually just met with Rick Federico who was the CEO of that company and he's one of my biggest mentors and I'm a huge fan but anyway they started they hired me shockingly and this guy that trained me at the end of the shift was like you've never worked in a restaurant before have you and I was like no but I really need this job and he said, okay, well, since you told me the truth, I will let you keep working here. And he did. And he really did train me and um, I kept going there. So I'm working to the restaurants. Anyway, I get to the senior year, decide I'm going to go to Italy um, and, and kind of had, there were other people. I didn't know anybody going over there. I always had a, I don't know why, but I've always had um, a desire and an ability to kind of put myself in pretty uncomfortable situations. I actually kind of like it sort of strange, I, I suppose a little bit, but Anyway, packed up and went over there and I'd met my now husband um, about two months before I was leaving for Italy. And this is back in the day. Again, we know we don't you didn't have your own computer. You certainly didn't have a cell phone. 
And we um, stayed in touch over while I was over there. And you'd go to these internet cafes and you'd rent time on their computer and you could log into your email and write these letters back and forth. And then, you know, I'd go have glasses of Pinot Grigio with my colleagues and call him at what was like, you know, 11 or 12 at night in Italy, which is like 8 a.m. over here and be like, hi, what are you doing? <laughs> call him, like, you know, tell him how great he was. Right. <laughs> anyway, he ended up coming over there and visiting and that was where we ended up falling in love and I came back to Arizona. We ended up actually getting married there. So Italy is very near and dear to my heart. I've been there 10 times. It's been really influential in um, kind of my restaurant world, obviously. And I love the culture. I love the people, the food, obviously. The wine's amazing. It's just always, uh, and I think that's kind of where it started was that first spark when I was uh, finishing my degree at ASU through that program. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. And and as I understand the story, um, you know, the restaurant piece and spending time earning extra cash uh, inside uh, the chaotic and exciting world of restaurants didn't stop there. You, you uh, after ASU, spent some time in uh, Nantucket. And uh, I think if I understand it right, this is where some pretty major breakthroughs happen for you, or at least some clues that have led you to where you're, you are today. Tell us about the Nantucket experiences. Yeah. So I, um, I didn't really want, and I came back from Italy and I, um, I didn't really want to, I wanted to go to grad school, but I didn't really know. And I was kind of having that conflicted kind of, scenario that a lot of people face and I so anyway I met this guy one night at a party and he told me he met he made $30,000 in uh, Nantucket waiting tables and I was like wow and my best friend and I she had lived in Manhattan and we both wanted to get to New York so we thought you know I was like I'm gonna go to grab school but let's go work in Nantucket and save up and get this $30,000 so we can live in the city and we loaded up my Jetta literally to the brim sold everything else that we had and drove cross-country Wyatt and I broke up um, and we get to this island that if, if a lot of people out here don't really know about it, but it's a tiny little island. Reminded me a lot of like kind of the culture of dirty dancing where there was like these really rich people come to the island, but then there were all the people that worked there. And that was kind of a sub community of, of it. And we just had, I mean, the greatest time ever. It was so much fun. We were, we'd go to the beach all day long and then we'd work and make crazy great money in these restaurants at night. And we met amazing people. And so that, that, um, that winter I went to New York and, you know, it was like, I love New York. I still do. It's my favorite city in the country, but it's different there. And I kind of had this, um, starting to question ended up going back to Nantucket the next summer. And I remember the night I was bartending and I was like, I'm going to open my own restaurant. Duh. It's everything I love. It's people, wine, food. And, and it's perfect. And it doesn't seem that hard. Like how hard can it be? So, uh, <laughs> Famous last words. Totally. So I save up $30,000 and I come back to Phoenix. And in my mind, I was like, I can open two restaurants for this. This is cool. And uh, at the same time I was figuring that out, I um, met Craig DeMarco and um, I was working because I had some friends that were working at Postino Arcadia and bought some tables from him. And anyway, um, he was like, why are you buying these tables? And I'm like, I'm going to open my own restaurant. He was like, hang on a second. Let's talk about this. So that was really, Nantucket is a really special place to me for a lot of reasons. I met some of my best friends there, um, continued on with my very best friendship with Angelique and I, um, learned so much and got to work under some really amazing restaurateurs there too. 
Uh, so it's really still is a, it's just an incredibly special place for me. You know, you, you glazed over so quickly, and I want to go back to it just for a second. You know, when you were working at Postino Arcadia and you had this dream, like, and, and you shared it with Craig, I'm going to open up this, I'm buying these tables or this excess furniture or whatever's going to be thrown out. And you're going to go open up a restaurant, you know, perhaps most uh, restaurant owners, restaurateurs at the time would have heard a member of their team say that and be like, yeah, whatever, good luck. But uh, he obviously didn't. Uh, I'm, I'd love your perspective. What do you think it is he saw in you or experienced from you that led him yeah. to say, wait a minute, time out. You've got something that I'm not going to let go. Before I answer that, I'll tell you two, two things. Craig has two really special superpowers. And the first one is um, his ability to get amazing people uh, around him and see what they're capable of and then provide them with a ton of wind at their back and belief and inspiration and then let them run with it. And I think it's, um, it's, it's a huge essence of why our company has been successful. Um, and the second thing he does is he has the ability to see what other people don't see. And, and not only in people, but in real estate and um, in buildings and the list goes on and on. It's just a, it's an incredible talent. Um, for me specifically, what did he see in me? You know, I don't know. That's a really good question. I think he saw a lot of grit. I had put together these books of these restaurants, like I wanted to open. And I remember having um, wine with him. Chris's wife and showing them to them and I think he just I would work on the menu even before we ever talked about doing this he really had such a sincere belief in the team that he let us run with stuff and in my mind I was like all right this is my practice round so I'm going to just treat this place like um, it's mine and that was actually some of the best advice I ever got from someone I had presented to him he was a friend of my mom and I wanted to invest in the restaurant because I was coming to terms with the fact that $30,000 wasn't going to get me that far but um, he said to me, Lauren, you don't want to open a restaurant in, in Florida. Like, this is just, here's why it's tough, whatever. And he looked me in the eye and he said, go back and make yourself indispensable to the person that you're working with and treat that place like it's your own and learn everything you possibly can. And um, I came back and I did that. And if anything, I think he saw that. And, and it was also, I think he saw my willingness. Like, I didn't care how much time I was spending. I wasn't clocking hours. I wasn't like, are you paying me for, you know, this little tiny, I just didn't think of it like that. In my mind, it was, an investment into the things I wanted to do. It was a test round. It was like learning from someone who really had figured it out. And, and when I was tired or cracked or whatever, I just always looked back to that. And I think he saw that. Do you feel, I mean, so many people and in the line of work that I get to spend my time doing, which is helping uh, leaders and organizations find one another, those that should, because they've got not only, uh, you know, common, uh, there's there's a there's a, a business need and the person can fill, but that common alignment in mission and purpose and what each other stands for. Do you ever think about how lucky you are that you were able to figure out this unique combination of food and wine and spending time with people and you know having spent a little bit of time with you, you move at a, a I mean your RPMs run really high and so just the natural environment of hospitality and restaurant is very uh, aligned to that. Do you, do you ever take a step back and just think about? Um, perhaps how lucky you are that you found it when you did? A hundred percent. I think, I think of it probably in some way, shape or form every day. Um, 
that being said, this is fascinating to me. And I actually, and this is going to sound funny, but I, I honestly only recently found out how many people really don't like the work they do. I was at my shrink's office and I don't even remember how this came up, but you know, it was like, God, I don't, I don't know how people do that. Like, how do you get in your car? How do you wake up and put your pants on where if you know where you're going is going to be crappy? Like I just, and she asked me like, Lauren, how many people do you think do that? And I'm like, I don't know, like 20% of people. And she laughed and she's like, no, I would tell you probably the opposite. Like 80% of people do that. Yeah. She's right. And I'm really, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because I think I've always been kind of a person that really saw the specialness of life and every moment that you get and even looking through the lens of positivity most of the time and I it's fascinating to me so while I think certainly that there's a, a level of luck about this and you know certain paths crossing and certain things coming available and 100% luck but I also think it's a willingness not to settle for something that you don't have a fire in your belly for and even because we get our ass kicked almost daily I mean I like I, I just I think you, if you don't have that fire in your belly, it's so hard to get back up and pick the bat up again, you know? And Amen. I just, I would, I tell people, I think they think I'm bullshitting them. I would do this for free. If I won the lottery tomorrow and won $50 million, I would probably, the only couple things I would maybe not do, I would buy really, really amazing art for the restaurants. And I'm talking like blow your mind art. And then I would also buy like really cool tile because tile is ridiculously expensive. And I, we always are like struggling with this, like $40 a foot. I mean, I don't know if Jesus makes it or what, but (laughs) those are probably the only two things I would do differently. I really tell you it's true. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. And then something else happened with me and like, I didn't get, I I got, I had a a sickness and it was fine. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like I was going to die, but it was enough to like, 10x that thought process and and as I was kind of getting through it I remember like laying in bed and thinking like if I ever fucking feel good again I'm getting after it in a big way and I'm talking about like the entirety of life and you know it's the way you the lens you look through of your life is such a choice and that that I already felt that before that happened to me but then after it was like it was exponentially more yeah and it's uh and I want to keep the focus on you, but I've had some experiences as of late where, you know, you got that choice needs to be made every moment. It's not just a one time, Oh, I'm going to choose it. And now I'm all good. It's uh because you do get your ass kicked and I've, you know, have had a few experiences getting my ass kicked lately, but it was an ass kicking I deserved. And now it's a matter of, okay, you got your ass kicked. Now you got to choose what to do with it and you got to choose it every single day. And it is true. You know, that Wayne Dyer quote, you know, as you begin to change the way you look at things, the things you look at change, it's so damn true. It's, it's absolutely true. That's why I did this social experiment yesterday and it was, um, I had this person that I knew kind of well, and you know, you're, you're all on social media and I love to share stuff and we do some really cool things. And I, it's, I almost look at it like a, like a diary of life, right? Anyway, this gal said to me, Warren, you have the best life. Like you have a perfect, amazing life. And I was like, wow. I mean, that landed on me in kind of a heavy way. Cause I was like, damn, do I have like the Truman show of social media? And I was like, okay. And I thought to myself, this was a few days ago. I'm like, all right, you know, the next time I have like a crappy day, I'm going to find some way to either take a picture of said crappy day or situation and talk about that. Because the point of it is, is that you don't not have those things happen, but you, you just think about them differently. And so anyway, I posted on social media and I said something like today sucks. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
I w got angry, pissed off, offended. I had a shitty attitude. I sucked as a mom today. And it was like, and then I said like hashtag social media truth and it's okay. And it was wild what happened. So I, I started getting, I post it and I start getting all these text messages from people that I love. Like, Oh my God, are you okay? Like what happened, Lauren? I mean, I have never heard you talk like this. And I put it on Facebook with the caveat of like, you guys, all I ever post are really great things. And I want to make sure everybody knows. It's not that I don't have rough days or bad stuff happen to me, but I choose to look at it differently. Right. Right. And it was wild how people understood that because I do think they experienced me for the most part in a pretty positive place, you know? Well, and I think you're hitting on, you know, this, uh, this epidemic of our society as a result of social media that very few people are willing to lean into everything that happens and you know what social media seems to be chronicling at least the facebooks of the world and some of the other more positive you know the instagrams or those that you know we're just sharing the good stuff and very few people are leaning into the the struggles and frankly you know it sounds like you, you undoubtedly you've learned way more from the struggle than you do from the successes and there's no genius in that statement but we rarely put it out there for others to see for whatever reason and you did and right. And look at the response. I want to take this to like another level. I want to even go deeper and say like something I screw up or like when I make a big mistake or, or like even in more specificity and see what happens. I'm really interested in this. It's, it's like, I don't know. I mean, we'll see what happens, but it was interesting. You know, you gave me a great segue to a topic I wanted to get to later, but I'm going to get to it now. And I know you're a huge Danny Meyer fan, the founder of the Union Square Hospitality Group. And uh, uh, there's a quote that I stumbled upon of his, and the quote is, a great restaurant doesn't distinguish itself by how few mistakes it makes, but by how well they handle those mistakes. And given you know this topic we're on right now and getting your ass kicked, share with us uh, a mistake that you've experienced at any of your family of, uh, of, of brands that just kicked your ass and how'd you recover from it? What comes to mind? Give me a story. Give me something juicy. There, okay. Let me think for a minute. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that I think that's absolutely true. And you know, what's wild is like when you, there's really something interesting that happens. People think when you tell others about a mistake you made or something you screwed up or whatever, they that you think a lot of people do, including myself, you think people are like, wow, you're a terrible leader. Like, wow, you're a really crappy business owner. Wow. You suck. Like, but that's actually the opposite of what people think. What they think is, man, I cannot believe that you have the courage to talk about this. And it's really interesting. And I'm feeling really connected to you right now. Like I can identify with that. And this really cool thing happens where people build trust with the person that's sharing the mistake. And I think this is a, in the essence of leadership. I think it's the essence of customer service. I think it's the essence of recovery. And it, more than anything, is the essence of life. Because when someone says, yeah, me too, it's really special. And so I just, I just wanted to add that. I, I think obviously Danny's a genius. And I, I think that that whole theory stretches not only across the restaurant space and customer service and guest service, but in life in general. Yeah, I, I would agree so with let you. Me, let me give you some juicy stuff we've screwed up. Okay. Uh, two years ago, we decided that we would sell e-gift cards and we did this like three days before and we were going to have this huge sale on Black Friday. And I've been known from time to time, this is like the entrepreneurial conundrum. Um, I'm like, we should do this in like two days. We can make this happen. And so I push this down the throat of um, my team and they're like, okay, like, you know, you're kind of influential and they want to, they want to kick ass too. So they're like, yeah, let's do it. And 
we send out this e-blast that we didn't proof and it was really convoluted about what the discount was and that it was um it, it wasn't in our favor for what it was and so that was the first problem and the second problem was we had no plan for fulfillment we um and then we told everybody that we would get these said gift cards to them in two days and so we open up the floodgates with this incredible promotion. I think it was like buy a hundred dollars and get $40 free. If you use this e-service gift card, we get like completely annihilated. And it was like one thing after another. And, you know, it started from not having anyone to fulfill them. And then we were manually entering the numbers wrong. And then we were trying to package them and they were getting the wrong ones were going to the wrong places. And then this guy that worked with us at the time, put uh, the wrong postage amount on them. So we finally get them all in the mail and he mails them and everyone starts calling like three days after we've mailed them, like, where is my gift card? And we, the mailman comes with literally bins of these thousands of gift cards and brings them all back to us. And is like, you guys didn't put the right postage on this. Like I wanted to die. So, I mean, you're talking about like thousands of customers that we've already put out a deal that sounds too good to be true. And now they're not getting the gift card. Oh, we also failed to put a field in there with a phone number on it. So all we had were people's emails. It was, I literally wanted to like crawl in a hole and not come out. I didn't know what to do, you know, with so many people and people were super pissed off. So what we did was we just, we divvied them up. We literally sat down and everybody that had any time and it's Christmas time. She was like Thanksgiving week. So it's crazy for the restaurants. And we split them all up and we just emailed everyone. And we said, we're sending you this gift card and we're sending you a hundred dollar gift card apology. And I think in that scenario, like going over and above what you, it was very hard to eat that it ate up all the profits and then some of, of, you know, that whole exercise, but it was a huge lesson for me of a, not listening to your team and, and really like running things by them of like, Oh, this is great. Like, this is going to be sweet. Let's just do it. Like, let's, you know, get it done. And then also not qualifying systems around something big and not anticipating it going like slightly viral and then what to do in recovery. And I, it was, it was, it's always sticks out in my memory when people ask me that. And it's still like, some people will still bring it up. I mean, they're like, are you guys going to really mail these this year? I told Brittany the other day though, we just did the same thing. And we have like now this well-oiled machine around this process. And um, I was like, dude, I didn't even see a gift card this year. And she's like, yeah, they're already gone. We already did it. We have, we had, we automated it. And I was like, whoa. Whoa. How, <laughs> oh, how times have changed. Oh, that's good. That's a good yeah. one. That's a good one. I'm curious. Do you, do you have any, any, uh, any memories come to mind of when you sent out the hundred dollar gift card and the apology, uh, any specific uh, customer or guest uh, phone calls, emails, uh, recognizing that you were making good and, uh, you know, going over and above to, to rectify the situation. Yes, we did. And here's the other piece I failed to mention was that when we did go back and tap them, the first thing we did was that we fell on the sword and we were like, we completely screwed this up. If you need these gift cards right away, let us know. We're going to drive it over to you. If you can wait, then they're going to come here. And at last, we're going to give you this, this hundred dollar gift card for, this absolute like total faux pas and screw up people were just like are you serious like some people were like no no I don't want you guys to do that I mean it was really interesting to kind of watch the different responses but I think that's a huge part of recovery too right in any facet is this acknowledging I tell my team this is very simple there's very easy ways to do this you acknowledge that you made a mistake um and you fix it and then you you do something to make it right and and I think that it's really simple and we all we get really tied up in thinking that people want to know why it happened. And there's part of people that do, but we spend way too much time in why transitions into excuses rather than like, you know what, 
we in our restaurants, this is very common. Your food is taking a really long time and we're really, really sorry. They don't care that, you know, our vendor showed up 20 minutes late and we couldn't unpack the food fast enough to get it prepped or, you know, our dishwasher didn't show up or, or someone forgot. They don't care. They just want their food. Really, when you think about it. So we can kind of cut that off at the head and just say, we are really sorry. We screwed up. We're going to take care of it tonight. And I'm going to be right over here. I'm going to send you guys some, some guacamole and chips while you're waiting for your food. And they're like, uh, okay. You know, so I think that's the essence of mistakes and you're going to make mistakes. And if you can, if you can figure out how to recover from them the quickest and acknowledge it and then move on and learn from it. And I, I really, we try to stay really focused on that. Is that where the, uh, I'm curious, the, I know you guys have an email address at Upward Projects that I believe you make available for every one of your employees. Um, is it, I think at upwardprojects.com or something to that effect? Brian, I'm impressed. I mean, yes, that is absolutely exactly it. Anybody, you can send something there if you want it to. Oh, I it's not just for employees. It's for anybody. <laughs> it's, it, it's the main purpose of it is for employees. But I tell people too, like if, if I'm at one of the restaurants and they're like, I have ideas, I'm like, send it here because it goes to our whole team. But um, yeah, we wanted there to be a place for people to express themselves without the fear of, um, you know, something happening with their, their boss or their job or, you know, we just, we really value feedback. And I think, providing people different ways to give it is really important, especially as you scale, because what happened before and when we were small and we were one or two restaurants, we would just go in there and I'd talk to people and say, you know, what do you think about this? And what, what do you think about that? Why, what do you guys, do you like that? Do you not? Do you have any ideas? I mean, but now just as we scale, it's gotten harder, obviously to do that. It's still ingrained in our culture of our leadership teams. But for me, it's important that they all have, they have a direct line to Craig and I too, which I think is super important as well. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So this leads me to what I think is, uh, uh, maybe maybe I'm uh, the minority on this, but I think this is fairly revolutionary in the hospitality and the restaurant space where your model, the operating model, the operating philosophy of Upward Projects is employees first, not guests first, which is, you know, I think to maybe many people counterintuitive. And is that something that... Um, where did it come from and why, if I've got it right, why is that the operating philosophy? It is. That is what we think. And I think I'll explain to you why I think fundamentally it just works in a minute. But we, I read Danny Meyer's book um, when it first came out. And I obviously had spent time living in New York with a huge fan of his restaurants. I mean, he was and is a behemoth in our industry for a long time. And people, I loved when you would go in his restaurants and you never knew they were all so different and you never knew you wouldn't, unless you were really trying to figure out, you wouldn't really know it was like that one company. And they, but more than anything, it was obviously beautiful design. And these restaurants are in New York. You can't, there's certain basis that you have to have to even have a place there for longer than a month. But more than anything, when you would go in there, these restaurants like made you feel something. And I, I really was interested in this because I think in New York, especially the bar is so high. Like you have to have a beautiful restaurant. You have to have great food. That is this duh. Or in other markets, you don't necessarily, and we've all been to that restaurant. That's really beautiful, but the service sucks or the food is terrible or whatever. Um, what, what was very compelling to me about this was I felt early on when I would go there. And I mean, I was like 19, 20 years old those people that worked in the restaurant were there. You could tell that they were genuinely wanted to make you feel something. 
and they wanted to make you feel valued. They wanted to make you feel special with the food. And I, I was really curious about always how he did that. So when that book came out, I remember I read it in like a day and, um, we had had, let's see, we had just opened Pristino Central. So we had Arcadia and Central. And I remember thinking like, if we ever, if we ever get a third restaurant, like that's going to be really hard if we have three restaurants and can you still do this the way we do it and get results? And I read that book and it gave me so much confidence to scale our company and really practical things too, about how to assess individuals and if they can think like this, because it does take a certain genetic makeup to, to be of the mindset of, of people first. and um, it was really compelling. And that's kind of the seed that started it. And then we just really, that's, that was functionally one of the things that Craig and I were really aligned on in terms of how we wanted to live our life and how we wanted to come to work. And we, we just felt like that was the way we wanted to do it because it felt good and was getting results. And then, you know, the example I give to people because they're like, well, wait, um, you know, the customer is always right. I'm like, who the fuck ever said this quote? Like, who is the person that said this? I just want to meet them. <laughs> that is not true. Okay. And you know, there's no, it, I guess it's an anonymous quote, whatever, but I think it's, I look at it like this, like the restaurants are a car and there's all these different people that someone has to drive the car. You have to physically have the car and then you have to have the gas in the car. I look at the employees as the gas in the car. Like, I don't care how nice of a car you have. I don't care who's driving it. If it's Mario Andretti or your grandma, you are not going anywhere if you don't have the gas. And so if you don't take care and put gas in the car and make sure it's good gas and that it's going to do that, it doesn't matter. And so that's how we look at it. You know, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we, we and always knew if, 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 if we took care of the people, they were going to take care of the guests. Why would they not? hundred percent. You know, and it's interesting too, when I think back to probably 17, 18 years ago, I was with a different organization. I remember reading a case study. It was the Sears Employee Service Profit Chain. And I think it dates back to the 1960s, the Sears Roebuck Company. And they were one of the first organizations to say, hey, the way to you know sustainable profits is employees first. And began building a model that way. So I don't, you know, it, but it still seems somewhat unique and even more so, I think, in an environment where it's rooted in hospitality and service for other people, which I guess you could argue is all types of businesses, but particularly in the restaurant space where people are choosing to escape the normal routine to be with friends or family to be waited on, to have an experience, you know, so that sort of environment, all those for that confluence of those factors, I think leads a lot of restaurateurs to that, you know, anonymous uh, quote of, you know, the guest is always right. And you're like, well, maybe, maybe not. But if we don't actually take great care of our teammates and the people delivering the service, the guest is going to have a shitty experience, period. No matter what. Yep. Right. Yep. It's just, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to me too, because, because when you think about what, what happens and we've experienced this in some facets too, like the larger you get, something happens or, or one person of your say at the time, like, you know, 150 employees behaves poorly or does something wrong. And, you know, the restaurant business is stressful. And I, one of the people who I respect a ton in this industry, Andy Forsheimer, who owns a company called Barteca. He told me the other day, Lauren, restaurants don't get tired. Restaurant owners get tired. And that landed on me like heavily. And I was like, you know, that's totally true. And when this, when these things start happening, I think, you know, one person does something, so you're like, okay, well, we're not going to do that anymore for everybody. 
and I, I think that's a, an epidemic in our, in our industry as a whole. And rather than leaning in towards the people who are doing things right, we start to build systems and rules and regulations around the people who are doing things wrong. And so, and then you kind of start to develop this sort of view that, that everybody's out to get you. I mean, we've all seen this. And I, I, I think even if you're not in the business, you know, kind of that old bitter restaurateur that's just kind of tired and um, doesn't want to do it anymore. And I, I just, that's probably one of my biggest fears in life is to get to that point. Yeah. We, I tell my team all the time, we've got to be better than that. We've got to innovate around this. We can't, we can't lean towards the person doing something wrong. We need to lean towards the group who's doing something right. So I'm curious, cause that really, that brings up a question for me around dis, uh, disruption and innovation and what's happening just in the business world in general. Um, and thinking about that from the restaurant space, what's coming? What's next? What are you thinking about? What are you and Craig and your leadership team thinking about that you believe is what is coming next? Like, where's the innovation and the disruption going to come from? We're still being disrupted. I think when when you think about the impact of tech on our business, and I'll give you a couple prime examples. It's remarkably changed the restaurant industry and the, the two I would say coming to mind right out of the gates is first Yelp and then second um, the delivery services so first with Yelp when you would open a restaurant you'd have to ask people like how was it maybe it was all word of mouth you know even if you found out about it like where should we go you'd ask people now you know you have a smartphone that you can open up and even when you look for a phone number or directions to a place it's going to give you a rating and a score there that was never available to people five years ago and even when it started about five years ago there weren't there wasn't enough data points or, or reviews to give it validity really in people's minds and it certainly wasn't tied to you know phone searches and that kind of thing now there's so so much feedback available to the general public that you cannot screw up. And then if you do screw up and you open a crappy restaurant, the lifeline and the, the term of life on that restaurant is much shorter than it used to be. And now we can get feedback um, in a matter of moments and look at pictures of what people are liking, what they're not liking, qualified data. So the amount of data available to us from the tech side and not only from Yelp, but just in general, that's influencing people's real estate decisions. It's um, influencing stats of who eats at your restaurant, geofencing, tracking people. I mean, it's borderline creepy the amount of data that you can get um now we, they're tracking your phones uber selling where you're going in uber rides and I don't, this one just came out this morning it was like the lift awards of the most visited restaurants and event venues and whatever i mean they're selling this data and so we've never had this amount of data for us and it can be awesome and it can be really terrifying and i think also in just influential in negative ways you know there's i think it's the restaurant business is probably half art and half science in a lot of things we do. Um, so that's a big one. And then secondly, I would say that the Uber Eats, the DoorDashes, the Grubhubs of the world, um, and people's actions around that. So a lot of people don't know, but in 2016, um, restaurant spending eclipsed grocery store spending for the first time in the history of the world. And I think more people are eating out now. More pe people are working longer hours. They're picking up food to go. So those habits are changing, which is positive. Um, but the influence of this delivery side, which so, and a lot of people don't know this either. When you order a $10 item, um, say from one of our restaurants, the Uber or whoever is charging you a fee for the delivery, whatever. It's like five bucks and then you tip. But they're also charging the restaurant about 30% on average um, of that item. So they 
and there's no very, very, very few restaurants that are making 30% margins. So most restaurants are losing money on this, but you can't afford to lose market share. So they do it. And um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that all shakes out. And if people maintain that um, and what happens and none, none of these delivery companies are posting profits yet. So I think we're really early on in the stage of that. We're tracking it really closely. Um, so I, I think we'll see what happens with that. So, but it all really revolves around tech and its influence um, on the restaurants for sure. And then that also goes in with training. I mean, our ability to communicate with our teams on a, on a platform, communication stronger. There's tons of pros about it too. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I think about the experience for me and there are some restaurants that, you know, if I am working late and I just want something delivered, whether it's to my office or to my home because I don't feel like getting in the car and picking it up, fine. But there's some restaurants where I don't want it delivered because the food tastes better at the restaurant because of the experience and the overall environment that, you know, going back to that comment you made about some of those places in New York where you just feel something. And I, I can't help but wonder if part of the continued differentiation uh, for any restaurant is going to be um, maybe making the strategic decision and the trade-off of, you know what, we're not going to partner with you know DoorDash or whomever it is for this particular resta- restaurant brand. Because if we do, we are taking away the essence of what is actually, what, what makes it special. Yeah, and there's there's really two camps on this, and I think it depends a lot on your concept. I mean, for us, Postino's food travels really well, so we have less concern about that. But you really are you're giving it to like a total stranger who has who is not a stakeholder in any facet. They're not a stakeholder in the delivery. I mean, they're 10.99 employees, and they can decide they're going to work this one shift and never work again. And they don't have anything to lose, really, right? Right. Um, but there's also like Windsor's food where we have fries and burgers. It's it's not as good. So I think you're delivering and giving permission to deliver subpar product to your teams. And that's really where a lot of the conversation in our industry is around right now. And Rick and I were just talking about this today. And, um, and then there's different levels of expectations that different companies have. And so I think it's really novel right now and people are liking it, but I think it's going to probably, I think restaurants are going to get tired of paying that level of commission and losing money on this stuff. And then I also think, um, that consumers are going to be like, you know what, it's, it's not as good. The grocery stores are clipping up. They're, they're up in their game when it comes to prepared food. Everyone knows Whole Foods is great stuff to take to go. I think you're going to see more and more of that. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I do think people are cooking less and less. And even like you look at Blue Apron and all those meal prep services, those things took off like skyrockets and they're all kind of really trending down now slowing down a bit yeah no it's it's really interesting it is really interesting i wish my crystal ball was more clear i'd certainly give you any insight that mine's telling me but uh it's cloudy as hell so uh we'll we'll have to check back back in on that uh in the months and years ahead um i want to transition if i can um i was cruising twitter about i don't know a month or two ago and uh, I saw a Conan O'Brien tweet and it said, and I'm, I'm going off of memory. His, he said, I'm ready for an all female reboot of America. And it was just one of those like, yeah, now's about the time. And you being obviously a female uh, uh, in leadership, in business, kicking ass, what the hell is going on right now? Like, 
this Pandora's box of sexual harassment that's been open, the lack of equality in pay, the lack of female representation at the board table, in leadership, like what's going on? Give me a sense of what you, what goes through your mind as a an amazing leader doing amazing things and happening to be of the female gender. So this is obviously a topic I feel passionately about. So I'll answer in a couple parts. First of all, I used to spend a lot of time thinking about like, is this person taking me seriously? Are they like, do they think that I deserve a seat at this table? Do they, you know, and, and I felt like that one day I was having a conversation with another gal who's in the restaurant leadership position as CEO. And I was telling her this and I was like, do you feel that? And she's like, you know what? I don't even care. She's like, I just want to execute. And she's like, I get out there and I kick ass because I'm not going to spend a bunch of time wondering if these guys think I deserve a table. I'm going to make them see that I deserve a seat at this table and I'm just going to execute. And I'm going to spend all my time thinking about how to execute and get results. And I'm not going to waste time thinking about what is that person thinking of me? She's like, I'm not doing it. And that was like, so inspiring. This is like two or three years ago. So inspiring to me. So first and foremost, I want to keep awareness around it and, and understand how people are, are doing it and support the mission of those who are trying to change that thing. But I also think I don't want to seat at the table because I'm a female either. That doesn't feel good. I've had a couple of recent experiences lately that people are like, oh, can you sit up front? Because we want people to know that we have women in this team. Or, or can you, Lauren, you know, we're going we're gonna to put you on this panel because it's all men. Like that is kind of what I feel like is the opposite of it. Like just, and I went to this other event and they were like, you know, we're going to do this panel about women in the restaurant business. And I said, that's cool and do that, but put more women on just regular panels. And let's not talk about the fact that that's where the women go is on the women about in the restaurant business on that panel. They go on all the panels. So what I'm trying to focus on is a shift of just integrating in, in regular life. Not that there's kind of this, this almost like reverse discrimination. Like you're getting a better shot at something for the simple fact that you're a woman. And I think it's also for women in those positions. Stop. I mean, be aware of it, but don't focus on it. Just kick ass. Stay in execution mode. I do everything I can every day, all day long to stay in execution mode. And if I'm busy wondering, is this person taking me seriously? Did I, you know, are they, are they a misogynist? You know, I just don't have time for it. And I'm, you're not going to fix these people. And so in my mind, the only thing that's going to fix it is get out there and get results and kick ass as a female. And I, I try to stay super focused on that. I don't, that probably answers like part of the question. And I would say the secondary piece is what's happening right now. I think women are sick of it. I think that the, they're sick of little comments. I think they're sick of, um, from a sexual standpoint of, of being consistently referred to your outfit, how you look. Um, and really, I don't get this a lot because I'm pretty hardcore, but, and I would, I, I personally wouldn't do that. That being said, you do, you get almost numb to it. Some of the stuff that that's said to you and you just sort of roll with it because it's not worth saying anything. And if you do, you're a whistleblower and, and that, that's going to hurt your career. So I think for a long, long time, women have just not said anything and tried to keep getting results and kicking ass. And now they're finally, a few people started saying things and, you know, other women, I think this is my guess. were like, yeah, this is bullshit and I'm not doing it anymore. And trying to send a message of the collective group of, you know, just be respectful. It's not, it's not hard. Be a respectful human. Yeah. Right. That's it. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. 
you uh, and I referenced this way early uh, during the conversation that you had attended your first ever uh, Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit back uh, in October. And I, I, you and I haven't had a chance to really digest from that. I'd love to hear what your expectations were heading into it. And excuse me, in uh, in hindsight, as you reflect on the experience, you know, how those expectations were met, exceeded, missed, you know, just how you're feeling about that particular community. Uh, I'd love to just hear your overall, what you were thinking going into it and, and how you're thinking about it today. Yeah. So I, four or five people, I think I told you this, had told me about it and were like, Lauren, this is really aligned with how you moved through your business and the values that you have. You should go check it out. Um, and I remember getting online and looking at it and the speakers, like the past speakers, the ones that were coming up. And I was like, wow, this sounds really cool. And I love, I think being a student of life is a really important core value and like kind of part of my manifesto. And I got the sense right out of the gates that I would learn uh, a lot and it seemed really great. And I had a friend, Heidi Janinga going and um, I didn't actually really know all the great people who were involved in Phoenix at the time. So I applied to get in there and I thought that was cool too. Like, wow, you know, they're going to be choosy about who they let in here because um, that, that I think is important too, that it just wasn't, if people were going to, I've gone to enough of these, sometimes they're, they feel really salesy at times. Um, so that's kind of how I went into it. When I got there um, from soup to nuts, from the moment it started until even after it ended until I literally got on my flight, got in my lift ride home, I felt like, these are my people. And there was something totally special about being with leaders from all over the world, from all over industries, um, in the same room, learning, growing, sharing. I mean, it was spectacular. I think I still talk about it. I, I still, um, I still talk. I met so many great people. I learned so many things. It was just one of those moments where it was like the right time, the right place. And the level of connectedness, I mean, I didn't, I knew Heidi and I knew a couple other people that came from Arizona, but there was no BS there. Like people, I would go and sit by a total stranger and you'd connect with them right away. And it didn't matter what their industry was or what, <clears throat> where they were from or what they were doing. There was just kind of this common core of, of, of thought processes and values and just in general awesomeness. And I, it just blew my mind on every level, the learning. I mean, seeing and hearing from John Mackey talk about what happened around the Whole Foods deal and Ron Shake get up there and talk about these activist investors and how they're torching companies and really the economy as a whole. I mean, the courage that people had around this, not only on the stage, but with one another was completely spectacular. That's awesome. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. I know yeah. we've, we've been, we've been, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to add one more thing. They, you guys called me, you did, and said, would you tell a story? And um, this story that I told had haunted me and still does in some ways. It motivates me and kind of haunts me. Not as much now. It's funny. Like, so I got up there and told that story in front of these people. And it was really an embarrassing story. And I was laughing with someone right before. I'm like, I'm about to get up in front of 250 CEOs that I really respect and tell them how I'm like a total asshole. And that was also like one of the most powerful experiences for me too. And that was really special. And I really enjoyed that part of it too. And it was, people were, again, like I said earlier, I mean, they were like, I can't believe you told that story. I felt like that so many times I felt out of place and like it didn't belong. And it was awesome that you told that story. I mean, just really galvanized and reinforced for me, that whole conference that I was on the right track and on the right path and that you can get results and take care of people at the same time. You know, and that's really what we're trying to do. 
Well, I think, uh, you know, and and I don't want to keep you too much longer. I want to be super respectful of the time you've dedicated for this. But given your mention of that story at a high level, I think to give our audience some perspective, would you care to tell it and do it in a, in a few minutes? It's a, I mean, having heard it now, uh, on a, on a couple of occasions, it's a, it's a great story. I will try to tell it on this super turbo speed because I imagine you want to keep this to an hour, but, um, Sure. Well, don't don't worry about our time frame. Well, this is a seriously the fact that we've even been chatting for an hour. It feels like five minutes because it's just so good. <laughs> well, that's nice. Thanks for the compliment. Um, yeah, you know, we when when we did this, I think going back and to be honest with you, I never thought in a million years that I would be here today and have thirteen restaurants have just raised a significant amount of capital and gotten people to believe in what we believe and and want to back us and. Um, and be running a company of 626 people and their families. I think of it like that. I never thought that. I still think I'm like, I'm a waitress, you know, and there's kind of always that in the back of your mind. And I think it's, it's really good in some senses because it keeps your level of humility and your grit and your desire to just get up and pick up the bat every day. But it can also be not great because it makes you feel like you don't have a seat at the table or you don't deserve to speak up or that you're out of place or you don't know what you're doing. And so, and they're both true and that's okay. And so in this particular instance, we started to run into some issues and Craig and I'd used our own money um, for a long time to build the company and any money we made in one deal would roll into the next one. So we ended up um, deciding that we were going to start to pursue some capital partners. And I'd reached out to a bunch of people who had done this before and we followed really closely the two brothers who founded snooze and watched you know what happened there and did the people who invested take care of their brand and their people and we were really interested in that and so alice elliott who is a a recruiter in our industry and really an amazing person i met her early on and she kind of took me under her wing and said you know like i'm going to help you with this and it's really complex and i'll help you and a couple months later she calls me says hey lauren i'm having this dinner in vegas so why don't you come out and, um, and you can meet a bunch of these finance people. And I was like, okay, cool. So I don't really ask any more questions. I thought this will be great. And so, you know, I uh, load up my bag and I'm busy working. I get on the nighttime flight and I, I'm like, get in my closet. I'm like, whoa, it's Vegas. Cool. I have this really cool blue jumpsuit. Like this is going to be perfect. So I throw it in the bag, get on the plane, get to Vegas. I'm hustling to get to the dinner. I put the blue suit on and I'm like just kind of on the phone taking calls and stuff and I get in the hallway and I'm walking down the hallway and I see myself in the mirrors in the hallway and I'm like, Oh my God, I look like cookie monster. Like, <laughs> and you all can't see me, but I'm five ten, And so this makes sense that I'm wearing this electric blue suit and I'm like, Oh my God. Was it a, uh, was, it, my- was it an Alexander McQueen jumpsuit by chance? I wish not so much, All right. but Alexander McQueen couldn't even save me, Brian. <laughs> no way. So I'm walking, I don't have time to like, and I didn't even bring any other clothes. So I'm like, okay, I got to go with this. But that was the beginning of the end my friends. And so at that point in time, I made the decision to start talking myself out of why I deserve a seat at the table, why I'm even going to this dinner. But it was also the perfect storm because I'm walking down to the valet stand and I'm like, you know, people are kind of looking at me like, you know, when you have a really jacked up haircut and people are like, they look at you like, Oh, I like your haircut. You're starting to get that vibe. And so I get to the valet line and I say to the valet guy, like, Hey dude, I'm like, do I look like cookie monster? And he starts rolling laughing and he's like, and did somebody tell you that? Cause that's good. And I was like, 
So I get in the car and my phone rings and it's David. And he says, where are you? This is the CEO of Snooze, who's been a mentor and a helper to us for a long time. And I said, oh, I'm going to Alice's dinner. Pause on the other end. And I'm like, hello. He's like, you got invited to that dinner? And I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, Lauren, that's like every big financial person in our industry, every private equity group, every banker, every attorney, like all the restaurant folks, like, you know that, right? And I like feel this pit in my stomach of like, oh my God. And I'm going in this and I look like friggin' cookie monster. Like I'm unprepared. I didn't like review my PL before I got here. Like Jesus Christ, like this is bad. So I'm like, dude, I got to go. He's like, well, good luck. Call me after. I was like, ah. So, <laughs> I get out and I'm walking in and I'm still telling myself story after story after story of like, this is stupid. I should just leave. I should call Alice and be like, I have food poisoning or something. And I'm like, no. And she sees me and she's like, Lauren, 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 come over here. And I was like, Oh God. And so you, you all know now at this point, even in this conversation, a huge Danny Meyer fan, she's like, Lauren, come here. I want you to meet somebody. And I'm like, okay. I walk over and she's like, this is Josh Golden. He did Danny Meyer's first investment deal. And I'm like, I'm, I, I, you could have blown me over with a stiff wind. I was like, Oh, hi. So I, you know, didn't do a good job um, talking about our business. I felt totally insecure. I felt out of place. I felt like I didn't belong here. So what did I do? I start puffing up and acting like I don't care and kind of moving through this and in a, in a not positive way. Um, and I end up going home to my hotel room, laying on the bed in my blue suit, bursting into tears and being like, I'm getting the fuck back to Phoenix. I don't want to raise money. I don't want to raise capital. I'm not doing this. I'm a waitress. I'm a restaurant person. I mean, it was just literally like the worst night ever so I pack up my blue suit my suitcase my tail between my legs make my way back to Phoenix and like any good person who's had a traumatic experience hightail it over to my shrink's office and, t and tell her the story of what happened and I'm telling this to her and she's listening and she said wow you really constructed like a pretty clear path here for how this was going to go but do you think that that's how other people experienced it and you know what if there was another way what if you had that blue suit and what if people were like wow look at this you know tall gal she's got a really cool blue suit on the rest of us were in black suits like I wonder what she has to say she kind of started rolling through an alternate scenario of, of what that experience could have looked like and you know the power of the thought process that I took myself down and I really believe that the body goes where the mind goes. So if you're saying and you're talking about how crappy something is or how much it's going to suck, it's going to be crappy and it's going to suck. And if you tell yourself, I don't deserve a seat at this table, I don't know what I'm doing, then you don't deserve a seat at the table and you don't know what you're doing. And it's just in that moment, in that blue suit, I, in her office, I, I just felt like I made a decision that I was never going back there. Because even if I wore a stupid outfit, which I guarantee you I will wear a stupid outfit again, there's no scenario where I'm letting the cookie monster suit take me down. I just wasn't going to do it. And I literally think about this pretty regularly. Like, is this a cookie monster suit moment? You know, when you have imposter syndrome or you're facing a challenge or like someone isn't treating you the way they should be treating you with respect or whatever, or you don't know the answer and, um, and you have a choice to puff up or shrink and, you know, in those moments when you decide to stand on your sacred ground that we call it and be yourself and know that you deserve a seat, you deserve a voice and you, you absolutely can be there. And I think then your actions and your words start 
to follow that. I, I really, really believe that. And that stupid blue suit taught me that. And I, there's not a time that really goes by that I forget that. And it was really, I'm so glad it was horrible and it was so uncomfortable and embarrassing, but I'm, I, I'm so grateful that it happened. It's a, uh, a story I've now heard three times and it gets better every time. And because it, it, it connects with me on, on a level that I can, uh, I've been there. Um, and I think everybody listening that we've all been there and, uh, really appreciate you sharing it. It's a, it's a great story. It really is. Um, Thanks, dude. you know, here, I, I will, I think that the thing that happens is like, what do you do in that moment when you spill coffee on your shirt or you forgot your report or you don't, have the answer I think that's like really where the focus point is is like how to regulate and how to get back to you just gotta you gotta get back in the saddle and get fixed figured out totally and that's where we all get trapped yep that's so true that's so true let's uh let me uh I'm gonna I want to steer you into one more topic that uh, we could talk about for a few minutes or it can be brief I'll, I'll leave that totally up to you but given where we started in this art uh, this pursuit and passion you have of art. I know that uh, you've been uh, a, I think what's referred to as a burner and attending Burning Man uh, a number of times. I don't know how many and my, the, the details aren't important, but I'm super curious, never having been myself, but having spoken to many who have and the impact it has on them. I'm curious as you think about your Burning Man experiences is it something that you do really for personal development, for pleasure, or does it impact what you bring back to Upward Projects? And if so, in what ways? Um, I, I think it does all of those things. And I hate to be that. I don't know if you've ever seen that funny video of like the guy that goes to Burning Man. He's like, it was existential. I never felt like. I never felt like I had this experience where, where it was like these out of body, like, Oh my God, I'm never going to be the same. If anything for me, it enhanced and galvanized the things that I already believed, which is the world is a beautiful place. There's the things that people do are amazing. The, the, there's no, and there's no differences in us. And when, the cool thing about when you go there is like all of that bullshit is gone. Like nobody knows what you do for a job. Nobody knows how much money you have. Nobody knows what kind of car you drive. And, that kind of clear field is really awesome. And people are just nice. I mean, and that, that, the energy of that, and then obviously there's tons of fun things to do. I mean, the scale of it is so big and that there's somebody in this level of acceptance of like, I don't care if you're into, I want to go play with orange bouncy balls. There's probably somebody there that also wants to go play with orange bouncy balls and they're into that. Um, and then the expression of, of, and the, the talents of humans that initially when I first went, my number one goal of going was because of the art and I'd seen photos of it and everybody who'd been told me that that just doesn't even do it justice, that it's the scale of what these people do in a short time in the middle of nowhere with no resources and nothing. I mean, it's spectacular. And when you go and see it and you see it during the day and then it's different at night and how it evolves and you'll be walking by it and then they're just going to burn it down. I mean, and it's, 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 it's unbelievable, the talents of humans. I think for me, that was awesome. And then the last piece is just, I'm part of the entrepreneurs organization and they have a camp there and we get to meet other EOers from all over the world. And that sense of camaraderie of your camp and your people. And, um, it's just fun and it's a checkout. The bummer is last year it was you, you the cell phones worked and, and for many years that had not been the case. And so it was really like you were off the grid. 
And I think that was attractive for so many people to go there. And like, you didn't have a choice, like you were checking out. And it's the, the other thing I would add to is incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable. There's no, there's no, I mean, you feel like you're on Mars. This dust is like super fine. It's in everything. You cannot get clean. I don't care how hard you try. There's, it's in, it's everywhere. You'll get maybe kind of wipe your face off and 10 seconds later, there'll be a dust storm. And we as people, and I think as you get older and certainly if you get more successful, you don't get the opportunity to really be uncomfortable and definitely not for long periods of time. And there's something really beautiful that happens when you're just uncomfortable in a lot of different facets, not only physically uncomfortable because it's hot or it's dusty or it's cold, but you're uncomfortable because maybe you're seeing something you've never seen or meeting someone that you would have never met, or they're saying something that you would never heard before. And I think that humans are fundamentally hungry for a feeling of, of discomfort and they don't even know it. I can't, and I feel like that's like one of the really beautiful things that comes out of that. Uh, I, I can't even, I could not have scripted if I tried for a hundred years a better closing statement. Wow. That was, that was really fucking powerful. That was, that was really awesome. I had tingles, uh, chills, uh, the, hair, the hair on the back of my neck. That means you I, need to go to Burning Man. Dude. I do. You need to, you, you, you and your gang need to bring my wife and I along next time we're in. I, cause you I know I, do I, it. I, I'd love fun. it. I mean, it's, it's, I, I've heard too. I never went in the early days, but I've heard it changes and I think that's okay. I mean, everything changes. It's just, but it's, it's a, it's a cool deal for sure. If you, uh, someone told me like, I'm not a big, I never, I shouldn't say I'm not a camper. I just, it's not like high on my list of stuff I want to do and I'm off, but they're like, Lauren, you know, this is camping times 900. I'm like, it's, it'll be fine. I don't know why I felt really compelled to go there last year. I just, this was the right thing in the right time. Well, you know, I think you have to listen to that. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. Wow. What a great, great, great conversation. This has been so much fun. I, I hope, uh, I hope it's been good for you as well. Sharing your stories, your experiences, you're an excellent storyteller and, uh, yeah, I can't wait to, uh, to spend more time with you down the road. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're the best, Brian. thank wow. you for, uh, for doing this. I oh, love that you did it. It's my special. pleasure. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Bailey from Upward Projects. If you've not visited, visited any of the Upward Projects, uh, properties in the Arizona market, they've got Postino, Windsor, Churn, Federal Pizza, and Joyride Taco House. Uh, you guys are expanding too into some other places. I don't, uh, and forgive me, I don't uh, have the map or where you're going, but uh, I don't, and maybe I'm letting a cat out of the bag. So anything you want to share on that front? Yeah, we're actually opening our Houston Postino on April 4th, um, pending no um, delays, which I don't think we've ever opened on time. So that's probably a shot in the dark. But we're looking for an, a second spot in Denver. We've loved being in that market. And then we're always looking in Phoenix. So, um, you know, we're crackheads for, uh, for old buildings. So if uh, someone calls up and they're hawking their wares and they have an old building, you know, we're probably going to be first in line for that. I love it. I love it. I mean, we, there's so many topics we didn't get to, but out of respect for our listeners, uh, you know, I don't know how many people have a commute over, uh, over an hour. <laughs> minutes, but we, we may have to, uh, you know, in the months ahead, jump on for a part two and cover some of the topics we didn't get to today because I know there's some great stories uh, still from the past to tell and there'll be some good ones uh, coming up. So Lauren, thanks again. What a pleasure and uh, wish you, your team, your family, both all your families, your work family, your home family, a wonderful holiday. Happy New Year for 2018 and keep kicking ass. Thanks guys. 
I hope you enjoyed hearing my interview with Lauren. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. Lastly, if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.